any uh, sitcom in the, in the history of television that's on air for at least one season will inevitably delve into the differences between men and women. It's such an easy trope. And it, ch it changes a bit in the times, you know, whether you're looking at a sitcom you know, from last year or one from the 90s or one from the 80s or the 70s, but inevitably the differences between the two sexes and their misunderstandings of each other will devolve into hilarity. And, and while we know the differences are funny, when we walk away from the sitcom and then things get serious, you know, back to, to real life, we don't know how to approach these differences because the other side of our culture tells us that there's little or, or no difference between male and female. It's impolitic it, to suggest differences, except maybe in a 30-minute sitcom block on weeknights or whenever you Netflix. Our culture doesn't know what to do with sex and gender. Two terms in today's context which mean radically different things, though historically they've been nearly synonymous. We're not, we're not even sure about what used to be the most banal biological distinctions. Men have penises and women have vaginas. You put that out in the public sphere and you're going to get pushback. And heaven forbid you go into how those sexual organs ought to be used. Scratch that. We're not even sure of heaven. Tolerance forbid it. And yet I think we sense on a deep level that there is a distinction between men and women, that it, that it does matter. And there are implications of this. Well, this is a, a series that I've resisted for a while. Um, Brian, who was, was up here earlier, uh, first suggested I do something along these lines um, probably last year. And I didn't want to do it for, for a couple of reasons. Um, some of you remember that back in 2016, I did a series on how Christians should interact with politics. Um, and I wasn't happy <laughs> with myself with how it came out. Um, and part of that, it was a very topical series. I didn't preach expositionally. And I resolved after that series that I would rarely, if ever, preach purely topically again. Now, for those of you who are, are new, or just for those of you to whom those terms are new, uh, by expositional preaching or expository preaching, here's what I mean. I mean preaching that seeks to dig out the root idea, the main idea of a discrete passage of scripture, makes it the main idea of the sermon, and then attempts to apply that to our hearts. Expository uh, preaching grounds the, the preaching ministry, and, and so the congregation uh, deeply in the Word of God. And the Word of God is what has the power to transform lives. My thoughts alone do not have the power to do that. Topical preaching, however, generally means taking a topic and saying some things about it. Obviously. Um, hopefully it's trying to capture what the Bible says about a topic. But that's a pretty daunting task. This is a a long collection of 66 books, you've probably noticed, and, and trying to say everything the Bible has to say about a topic is really hard. And, and an upshot of that is that most purely topical sermons are at best blurry snapshots of what the Bible has to say on a topic, and many, however well-delivered, wind up being just the musings and the personal wisdom of the preacher, occasionally sprinkled with Scripture. And that, that gets on dangerous turf. But topical preaching and 
uh, expository preachings are not opposites. Sometimes people make that mistake. Uh, it's just that most topical preaching is not expositional, but it can be, though. Um, for instance, we could put together a sermon series on the love of God, and we could, we could preach on ten discrete passages of Scripture that relate to the love of God on ten different Sundays, and then we would exposit those ten different passages. So this is one way it could be done. Well, over the last few months, I've had a, a couple of conversations with members of this church who also expressed interest in a study like this uh, and some sort of help or guidance in thinking through these types of issues. And so my mind began to reconsider it. And uh, I thought about how I could tackle this topic through expository sermons. And, and so this series is the result of those musings. So... I'm giving you a lot of background here as, as sort of the first message in this series. But here's how this is going to work. Uh, we're going to give you a taste of some biblical theology. So let me, let me break that down for you. Um, theology is the study of God. That, that probably didn't throw you off. And you, and you might be uh, uh, thinking, well, then biblical theology sounds like, oh, that's, that's uh, theology that's biblical. Theology that's rooted in the Bible. Theology that's true. And that's accurate, but, but when we say biblical theology, sometimes we are referring to, and this is what I mean, uh, a specific discipline. We mean doing theology in a way that understands what we say about God within the contours of the, of the overarching and unfolding revelation of God in Scripture. Let me put that another way. The Bible tells a story. Through 66 books and at least 40 different authors, a story is woven about God's creation, its corruption by sin and death, God's plan to rescue his creation, especially his prized creation, human beings, which climaxes in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and God's ultimate victory in redeeming his creation. Biblical theology, then, it, it might take a, a topic or a theme and look at how that theme is integrated into that larger meta-narrative of the Bible. And so when we study a passage or a scripture, we might be looking at a, a page in this book. When we do biblical theology, we're examining one thread that is woven through many pages, from cover to cover, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Sometimes we might study microscopically thin threads, like a, a biblical theology, theology of pets. We could do that. The Bible doesn't have a, a lot to say on that, and that would just be a really, you know, but we could look at everything the Bible says about animals and how humans relate to those animals, and we could, we could construct a biblical theology of pets. It would be a very thin study. Or, or we could take something like a, a rope that runs through Scripture like justice, or an eye beam that runs through Scripture like redemption. We could do that too. But all good biblical theologies are rooted in the beginning of the story. And so that's where we're going in this series. We're going to look at the first three chapters of the Bible. And we're, we're, going to, we're not going to mind their depths. 
We could sit in them for a year drawing out all their implications. But we're going to go into these chapters like we're going into mines full of rubies and gold and silver and emeralds and all sorts of precious materials and metals. And, and they might distract us along the way. Uh, but we're going to go in and we're going to look for one. We'll, we'll say the diamonds. And, and we're, we're going to pull those diamonds out. And, and some of those other jewels, we'll see them as we pass by and, and we'll leave them in the mine for another journey, another voyage, another day. So that's the first three messages. And the, four, uh, the next four messages in this series, so it'll be seven total, we're going to go back and we're going to look at four controversial passages in the New Testament in light of this little bit of biblical theology. So this will help us set the foundations for what we're going to talk about in weeks one through three. And then we will use that foundation to help us dig into some texts that are sometimes a little bit more controversial. Two that have to do with relationships in the home between men and women. And two that have to deal with relationships in the church between men and women. And some of our uh, answers might be surprising. So that's how we're going to go. Are we going to hit everything? No. Are we going to answer all your questions? No. Um, but I'm hoping that through this series we, we begin to give you some tools to work out the further implications. Um, and one, at least one, if not two or three growth groups are going to be taking some time together to flush out more implications in their time together. So if you're not part of a growth group, I would encourage you to, to check that out. Um, in this series, I have a few very limited aims. I aim to show that the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ which is the crown jewel of the biblical story, is not agnostic to these issues of gender. Instead, the gospel speaks about sex and gender, and what we think about sex and gender matters as Christians. And I aim to help us begin to work out some of the practical ways in which it matters. Not all, but some. And I aim to help us speak carefully and prudently and gracefully about a series of issues that are minefields in the cultural landscape of 21st century America. So those are some big aims, but they're also very limited aims. And so if I don't hit on something that you think I should hit on or want me to hit on or don't delve into it fully, we have limited time. But you can email me, you can text me, you can call me, we can get coffee. I'm available. But today we begin at the beginning, or nearly the beginning. Um, the passage is from Genesis chapter 1, if you want to turn there. Um, and uh, th this was a very short week for me. I screwed up the bulletins. Um, and uh, the, the sermon that's listed in your bulletins is the sermon from last week, so I apologize. Um, but we're looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, although the most part will be focusing on, on verses 26 and 27. Uh, so let's turn there. Let's go ahead and read those, and then we can, we can dig in. And, and the, thing that, the message of this passage really is that God seeks to glorify himself throughout the cosmos through the blessing of his most important creation, human beings. God seeks to glorify himself throughout the cosmos through the blessing of his most important creation, human beings. So starting in verse 26. God said, 
Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and To everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Broadly, this passage breaks up into two sub-ideas. The form of our creation, and the function of our creation. And from those, we'll, we'll put together the big picture And from that, we'll mine and find our our diamonds. The form of our creation is is explained in the first part of 26 and then in in 27. And there are so many diamonds in here. And if we were looking at the entire chapter, we would see that on days 1 through 5, God follows a consistent pattern. He speaks and it comes to be. God says some variation of let there be. And the result is that existence itself heeds his command and takes the form that he has spoken for it. And so he says, let there be light. And and the existence itself organizes itself into something called light. He says, let there be birds. And existence organizes itself into things called birds. But on this day, the pattern is ever so slightly broken and it's important. Rather than speak to creation, God speaks to himself. There is a communication within the triune God of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And he says, let us. Not let there be. He says, let us. You hear the difference? He doesn't say, let there be people. He says, let us make Man in our image. Everything else is created at a bit of a distance. We sense God's transcendence. That he's above and beyond the material universe that he sets in order. Like a general giving battlefield orders from a faraway command center. But on this day, God intervenes more personally. God fashions man. He takes a special and personal interest in man. God is no longer merely transcendent. With man, he becomes imminent. He becomes near. And so from the first words, we know something is different. I've been saying man to this point. The the scripture says God says to himself, let us make man in our image. And that might make you a little uncomfortable because we've become trained to think uh, and to consider generic references to man when referring to all people 
as unfair or sexist. In fact, I think every modern style guide rejects that use of the word man. Whether you're looking at, you know, APA or, or MLA or the Associated Press. This was moderately controversial when I was in high school. And we had, um, I had an a, a English teacher who was uh, very progressive, very liberal. Um, and we had one guy in our class who was staunchly not. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can imagine it was, there was some interesting parents. So he decided... Um, that he would cave, because he needed a grade, to not using the term man in anything he wrote. He would use human and humankind but to appease her, but then he would in- intentionally capitalize the M, the A, and the N in every instance. And I think he would intentionally use more uses of the term human, human, than he needed to in order to uh, push this home. I-, I think Ms. Thomas was nonplussed. Um, but it's also ironic because, you know, even though they sound the same, the term man and the term human have completely different roots. They're, they're unrelated for all practical purposes. So it, his point was lost in the history of, of linguistics. But some translations here do have humankind or mankind instead of man. And they're not wrong, but there are good reasons for keeping the traditional translation here, and those reasons may cut across some of our cultural assumptions, and so we need to, to wrestle with them. You see, the word here for man is Adam, a singular masculine noun. Hebrew, as it was written in Hebrew, Hebrew had a way of expressing a generic plural, and Hebrew had a way of expressing both men and women. Now, language changes, it's, it's functional, its purpose is to communicate. And I'm not going to argue that we need to be politically incorrect as, as human beings. But we also have to say that it's not immoral or entirely improper to refer to the human race with a masculine singular. It can't be because God did it in Genesis 1.26. So it must be possible to be respectful and loving and encouraging of women and still be able to refer to human beings as Adam. On a much deeper level, the word Adam is significant because it's the name of the very first man, Adam, Adam. And so this is, this is the seed of an idea that's, that's going to unfold in chapter 2 and some of this we'll have to leave until next week. And it has tremendous implications in Genesis 3 that that then carry on throughout the entire scriptures. But for now, we have an early reminder that the entire human race traces its origins to a single male. And there are very important theological reasons to keep Adam as a masculine singular noun, even if it's a little awkward in 2018 English. Um, So we know that both male and female are contained in Adam, and we'll say something more on that in a second. At the same time, because of the connection to the one man through whom all other men and women came, we miss something if we lose that. So 
hold that there. Put a pin in it as we work through this study. But the next words point us directly to that form. God decides to make man in his image or likeness. And, and there is no student of the Bible who doesn't recognize the inestimable importance of this idea. But what exactly does it mean? Well, we can throw out one idea right away. It doesn't mean that human beings look like God. We know this because the Bible repeatedly tells us that God is not a man. states that he's a spirit. And I think that the significance, though, of what, what, what do we do mean by this, um, <clears throat> some of the significance of that will be drawn out as we look at God's function for us. Um, so we can p- kind of put a pin in that, too, except I, I will say one thing. We have here an idea that there is something in man that bears at least a passing resemblance to God. No other part of creation has this imprint. And it means that the value of man is inestimable. This is why Christians have historically held that partiality is a sin. Favoritism is a sin. Racism is a sin. Classism is a sin. Sexism is a sin. Oppression is a sin. Abortion is a sin is a sin. Euthanasia is a sin. Why? Because from the moment that there is a new human being, that human being is marked by the creator with something of who he is. And if the old adage, you break it, you buy it, holds, we do not have the bank to clear that check. Human beings are of inestimable value, regardless of what they look like, regardless of their economic standing, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their sexual organs, regardless of their size or age of development or deterioration, human beings are precious. But before we close this section on the form of God's special creation, we'll note something. As we move into 27, God changes the language from creating Adam to creating male and female. That's not a small point, and we need to stop and consider it for a moment. You'll notice that in your your Bible, most likely, if you're looking at the ESV like I am, uh, and most other translations have these verses set off as poetry. And they, they are definitely uh, have a poetic quality to them. The lines balance each other. On, on the one hand, each of these lines says the same thing. And on the other hand, each line adds something so that the sum is more than the parts. That's often how Hebrew poetry works. Um, without setting aside the fact that God has chosen to create Adam... And speak of his creation in a masculine singular terms. We also have to consider the weight of both male and female being incorporated into this picture. So Moses is the author or editor of this volume. And that means uh, that no later than three and a quarter millennia ago. That's the latest possible realistic date here. About three and a quarter millennia ago. Millennia. God was making known to us that the male members of this species and the female members of this species were equally created in the divine image. 
And that means that this inestimably valuable imprint that rests on every human being, rests on women as much as it rests on men. And so there can be no accounting of the two genders that finds one gender more valuable than the other. And that's why in the list of sins I mentioned above, I I incorporate sexism because considering one gender to be more valuable than the other or giving more consideration to a person because of his or her gender is evil. Both are created in the image of God. There's more we can say here. If we take every word of Scripture as purposeful, then why did God deem it important to be so specific and so clear that he made human beings as male and female? It's impossible to escape the idea that gender is a binary concept. And it's a controversial idea today. In 2014, Facebook attempted to demonstrate their progressive understanding of gender by rolling out 51 different gender identities that you could choose from for your profile. Then it went to 58, then they expanded it to 71. Now they allow you to choose up to 10 different custom identities and even share different identities with different groups of people depending on how you want to present yourself to the world. I'm not knocking Facebook. They're doing what they think is right. And they probably think it's good for business. But they are illustrative of the way thinking has changed on this idea. But this text tells us that God creates humanity as male and female, a binary distinction. And that matters. And that matters. Because what this is saying is that gender and God's design for gender is intimately linked to what he is like. When we speak of male and female, we are saying something about God himself. Something about the very image of God. When we speak of 71 genders, we are saying something false about God. Whether we recognize it or not. We Christians generally understand that speaking the truth in love can be very hard. And the Christian message is an exclusive one. It says that there is a way to God, that Jesus says of himself that he is the way and the truth and the life and the only way to the Father. And only by placing trust in his death to pay for our sins can we be made right with God. And that level of exclusivity is not popular. But though we struggle to share that message sometimes, I suspect most of us here have come to terms with the fact that this message will not always be received well from time to time. And so because of that, I think we are sometimes tempted to think that that's one offense enough. Um, Jesus on the cross is offensive enough, and we're tempted to hide or abandon other truth about God to we're going to be honest, make our own selves more acceptable. If we're really honest, I think we sometimes don't want to give voice to some controversial topics as Christians. 
not because we really think that we need to make God more acceptable, but because if we're really honest, I think we sometimes sugarcoat things and shut our mouths to make us more acceptable to our neighbors, to our coworkers. We're concerned, I know I am, at times about, I'm not one of those Christians. I'm not one of those people. And sometimes we soften too much. Every generation has these battles. We have ours. Um, others have had theirs. If you're under 30, though, for sure. If you're under 40, probably. And if you're under 50, still a really decent chance you're going to have to wrestle with this issue in our culture of gender. There will be, almost certainly, at some point, cultural pressure for you to pay lip service, at a minimum, to the idea that there are a, a wide variety of, of gender identities. Or that those God created male are actually women. Or that those God created female are actually men. And we will need to be very careful about that because in our desire to be accepted, we might end up slandering God. Our creation as male and female speaks to the idea of God's image. Throughout history, kings and rulers and peoples have demanded Christians give honor to other images. In the early 2nd century, early 1st century, it was just say that Caesar is Lord and burn a little incense to worship him. And we'll leave you alone. You can think about it any way you want. You can, you can go to the altar and say, Caesar is Lord, and, the, and in your mind and in your heart, you can kind of whisper to yourself, not. We don't mind. Just burn the incense. Just go along. We'll leave you alone. So don't be surprised when the same pressure is placed on you with regard to gender. Our culture won't care if you secretly disbelieve it. Our culture won't care if you say in your heart, not. But did you acknowledge the false God whose image is manifested in 71 gender identities with the appropriate set of pronouns? I'm not trying to be humorous. I'm not trying to poke fun. This is where we are as a culture. And we will be asked to bow before that idol. A God who does not exist. Because the God who does exist imprints himself on human beings as male and female. Genesis 1.27 reminds us that gender is deeply connected to the image of God. And as such, it is not something we can casually distance ourselves from. Let me put a more positive spin on that, though. There's a more positive thing that we can say. We can also state that male and female are both necessary for the full manifestation of God's image. 
That isn't to say that a man by himself isn't fully in God's image or that a, a woman isn't fully in God's image or that only a married couple images God. Nonsense. None of that. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying that no human being alone can represent everything God is. The idea of an image isn't duplication. We, we aren't carbon copies of God. We, we understand that, or we'd all look alike. But somehow, a species that reflects God's image through these two forms, male and female, is complete and right and superior in a way that a species that reflects God's image through just one gender would not have been. And so we need to respect that this distinction between male and female matters. Now, that's not a code for, and you, you should not read that as a code for traditional roles or something like that. So, I mean, so many of the so-called traditional roles, frankly, aren't all that traditional. They just go back as far as our cultural memory goes. And moreover, our cultures, and every culture, not just the American one, is perverted by sin. So we, we run a huge risk when we look to cultural norms to define distinct, the, the, the distinction between male and female. At the very least, you're on dangerous turf. At this point, though, I only want to note that there is a distinction between male and female. And since God makes no mistakes, that distinction should be regarded as important and should be respected. And as we work through this series, we're going to note some ways in which this distinction is manifested. So, quick recap on this first point. Human beings are created in God's image. That's our form. We are mysteriously all summed up in one man, Adam. And we are mysteriously better imagers of God in two varieties, male and female. There are two genders. The distinction between the genders matters. And all people, regardless of gender, share an equally immeasurable value by virtue of being stamped in God's image. The second emphasis on this passage is the function of our creation. I'm going to warn you now, I'm, I'm probably going to run a little bit longer than normal here. So if you're new, this isn't, isn't going to be normal length, but I had a lot of stuff up front. And I apologize for that. Um, now, I, I don't quite like the term, the function of our creation. I just couldn't come up with something different. I'm not sure that it's exactly right. So hold it, hold it a little bit loosely. But I want to get across that God created us for something. He has a purpose for us that's evidenced in this passage, and it's expanded upon in chapter 2, but there is plenty to talk about here. When God purposes to create human beings, he says, and let them have dominion. And the realm of dominion is over every living thing on this sphere. And after God creates them, he speaks to them, and God specifies, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Again, there is so much here, but we're, we're looking specifically in this little biblical theology for one type of precious commodity. And so we'll begin with this idea of dominion. Now, it's important to remember that this, this is the very beginning 
or almost the very beginning. Evil has not come into the world yet. That hasn't happened in Genesis chapter 3. And at the outset, God gives human beings dominion. Dominion is rule or control. It's an area over which you can exercise authority. You have dominion over your apartment or over your home, unless you have a roommate, in which case you don't have dominion. Maybe you have dominion over your bedroom. You have dominion over your cubicle. God is telling human beings to extend their authority over all the earth. And again, this comes into greater relief in chapter 2. But here we have God giving a command for humans to have rule. So who's in charge? Human beings are supposed to rule, but it is God who orders them to have rule. So God's the one who's giving the command. God is the one who's ultimately in charge. He's the creator. He has the right to do with his creation anything and everything he desires. And what he desires is to hand over a slice of his rule to his image bearers, us, human beings. So we we can kind of circle back to this idea of being created in God's image. Let's revisit that. In the ancient world, it wasn't uncommon for a king or for a ruler to set up images of him or herself throughout his realm. They were markers that that stated for all to see that this was the king's territory. This was the area over which this dude exercised authority. In the book of Daniel, we can read about an instance in which the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, does exactly this. He sets up a a statue, an image of himself, to demonstrate his great power and authority. And then he goes a step further, and he demands that the people bow down to the statue as if a god. A modern-day example of this is easily found in North Korea, where you can hardly go very far without seeing images of Kim Jong-un and his father and his grandfather to let you know that this is the area where he rules in all of his benevolence, or so you'd have them believe. So when we combine that idea with the idea of dominion, on the other hand, uh, and the command to be fruitful and multiply, then we get a more precise sense of what's going on with being created in God's image. Just as God exercises dominion over all creation, he tasked his image bearers to exercise dominion over a slice of creation. And so we image God in our exercising dominion. We reflect a bit of who he is and what he's like as we exercise dominion. It gets better. Just like the Kim dynasty sets up its images to glorify themselves. So as we are fruitful and we multiply and we fill the earth, we are living and a breathing testimony to the fact that this territory belongs to the Most High God, belongs to Yahweh, the King of all kings and the God of all gods. Our function then, in no small part, is to glorify God. And so it's with good cause that the Westminster Confession reads that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that idea is is right here in Genesis chapter 1. The ultimate goal of your life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
And the, and the problem is, is that you and I have failed to fulfill this goal. We have, each one of us, chosen paths which defame God instead of honor Him and which cause us to be estranged from God rather than enjoy Him. This decision to live for glorifying and honoring ourselves instead of God is called sin. It's not a temporary condition. It'll keep us separated from God for eternity. But Jesus has provided a way to fulfill your purpose and my purpose. He glorified God when we didn't. He makes a way to restore us into fellowship with God where we can find full joy and live lives that honor God. That is the good news, the gospel. There's more here. God blesses them. And we'll note that we're back to full plural pronouns. God's blessing is on both male and female. Of course, that's not all that God blesses. Earlier on this day, he blesses other living creatures. And on the final day, the seventh day, he blesses the day itself as a day of rest. What links the humans and animals in their blessing? Well, the command to procreate, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's activity, really. And so he's calling them to be active and fruitful. And then he blesses the seventh day as sort of the anti-fruitful day. right? The day of inactivity, the day of rest. But we have here a blessing. And blessing is tied to procreation. And procreation is tied to filling the earth. Now... We get here our first, and certainly not, it won't be our last in this series, but we get our first taste, maybe, of why gender matters. We know that we procreate. And in God's infinite wisdom, he designed us to procreate as male and female together. And, and there's something about that pattern that uniquely glorifies God. It is his scripted plan for seeing his image bearers fill the earth. And so we're forced to wrestle with this idea that God's blessing is inherently tied to parenthood. So what is the difference between male and female in a blessing that's tied to parenthood? Well, one difference is in what uh, Jay uh, Budzizewski calls the potentialities of male and female in his book On the Meaning of Sex. Budzizewski argues from natural law, but here we have it in scripture itself, that part of our creation design is that women, female, have a potentiality for motherhood and men have the potentiality for fatherhood. Now, we're a long way from defining what that means, let alone what that looks like. But motherhood and, and fatherhood are here from the very beginning as implied but intrinsic elements to fulfilling our function. Now, does that mean that a, a man or a woman without children is somehow not as valuable or not honoring God or not under God's blessing? No, that's not what we're saying. Does a, a sterile man or an infertile woman no longer image God? No, of course not. That's not right. And the, and the Bible is replete with examples of faithful men and women without children. 
but it does suggest that there is a difference than between mothers and fathers, even as there is a difference between male and female. And if that design, that design of difference is baked into our respective genders. And that's why the, the Apostle Paul can counsel the younger Timothy to treat the older men like fathers and the older women like mothers. He doesn't say treat old men like fathers even though they're not your father, they're someone else's father. No, he says, regardless of whether the old man has kids at all, treat him like a father. Regardless of that woman has children at all, she's your elder, she's your mother. Which probably means that Timothy should expect some level of fatherliness and motherliness in return from those individuals. In fact, I think most of us have known women who have been mothers to us for a season or longer, though not biologically mothers. And we have known men who have been fathers to us, though not our fathers. And so this design of fatherhood and motherhood is distinct. And it's part of God's design for procreation. Again, we're a long way from saying what that distinction is. That's a question that might ultimately go beyond the scope of this sermon series. But if your philosophy of parenting, and most of you are pre-parenting, good on you. Um, But if your philosophy of parenting sees no functional difference between motherhood and fatherhood, then let me suggest that your understanding of parenting is probably flawed. There is a distinction, and it does matter, and it's worth taking time to dig into that. Let's go a step further. If a parental wiring is part of our design, then we must grow into parents. Now, I don't mean that all you singles out there need to find a mate today, um, or that all you married people need to start pumping out kids. Um, But you are called, every one of us, to continue a journey into maturity. I heard, um, this is a little aside, I I, I didn't know this quote, but I heard uh, this week that C.S. Lewis imagined uh, heaven and the new earth as an eternal autumn. Uh, Because at the early part of autumn, all of creation has reached its full maturity. It's become what it ought to be, what it should be. And I think that's a beautiful picture. We are called into a journey toward maturity. We we understand. We we look at these three critters over here uh, that I have, and one more somewhere around. You know, and we understand they are not fully what they're supposed to be yet. Some of us feel that too, that we're not what we are supposed to be yet. We we understand that we progress into maturity. And part of being mature is being a father to those who need a father, or conversely, being a mother to those who need a mother. 
that is part of our design and our baked-in pattern of what maturity looks like. For some, that might be adoption. For others, it might be that neighbor kid up the street whose parents are divorced. For others, it might be those, those college students who are away from home and away from family. It can be that, that younger person in church, that Timothy, who needs the guidance of your relatively few extra years. One easy way for those who are members of our church to do that is to spend some time working in the nursery. Men, I don't, we tend to always get women who work in the nursery, whatever that is in our culture. I think that's one of those cultural distinctions that's probably rooted in some level of sinfulness. Men, learn to be a father. How are you going to learn to be a father never being around children? It's not going to work very well. Women, learn how to be mothers. You can't learn to be a mother without being around those who are younger than you. You may never have biological children for any number of reasons, but God has created us procreatively. And that implies a bent towards motherhood and fatherhood. It means that there's, there's something intrinsic in us that is called to a parenting connection with other human beings. Let's take that a step further. There is a deep connection between parenting and discipleship. If and when you become a biological parent, you quickly realize that one of your first and most important discipling relationships is your children. That, that you have a responsibility to grow them in the faith, to teach them the, the faith which we were looking in Jude for a few weeks that we are called to contend for. To bring them up and rear them up in that faith so that hopefully one day they bow before Jesus themselves. And if they do bow before Jesus themselves, then we encourage and we build them up in that newfound faith. We exercise our parental design in this world as fathers and mothers when we choose to disciple those who need to be built up in the faith. And in a, in a peculiar way, we wind up being fathers to people who are older than us, mothers to people who are being older than, being older than us sometimes. And interestingly, we can jump ahead to Matthew uh, chapter 28, or, or maybe, you know, let me go a different direction. I don't, I thought I was here. I'll quote from memory. But <laughs> Jesus promises his disciples, um, he tells them that no one who has given up a mother or father or children or houses um, or riches or anything will, will fail to receive mothers and fathers and houses and families and, and more in this life and in the life to come, he says eternal life. When we are bought by the blood of Christ, we are brought into a spiritual family in which we are children of one another, when we are fathers of one another, when we are mothers of one another, we are brothers of one another, we are sisters of one another. 
And we have, don't we, even as biologically we were given a commission by God from the beginning, aren't we given a procreative mandate within the confines of the gospel as well? Remember, the, the design of human beings procreating in Genesis 1 was to fill the earth with the glory of God. And now human beings have turned against God in rebellion. And, and while there's still uh, something of the image of God in every one of us, it's been marred and tainted by sin, like somebody took a Sharpie to the Mona Lisa and drew a mustache on her face. It doesn't, our sinfulness mars the image of God, and so we don't image him as we ought to image him. And And so what are we doing? We are preaching the gospel so that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses sinners and restores the image of God in them back to what it ought to be. And so the Christian mandate isn't simply to go out and have a bunch of babies and and give glory, because that doesn't work anymore, not in a fallen world. We have to consider this mandate in light of Genesis 3. And so if there's sin in the world, then we get to Matthew 28, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you even until the end of the age. And so we have, even spiritually speaking, a procreative mandate, don't we? To bring the good news that there is a cleansing flood for that marred image that you were made in. That you might exhibit God as you ought and glorify him richly. And that's baked into our design. Baked into our design then, especially as redeemed on this side of the cross, if you're called by the name Christian, part of your design is to be fathers and mothers in the faith. To those who have yet to be born in the faith and to those who have been born in the faith and need to grow into maturity. so much that we could still dig in these chapters. But we have a form and we have a function of our creation and they matter because God is seeking to glorify himself in the cosmos through the blessing of of his most important creation, that's us. Let's pray. Father, may we be a people that takes your word seriously. May we be a people who uh, is challenged and pushed toward greater holiness. God, make us mature in our faith, mature in our humanity.
Let us have our eyes open to those who are near us, who can be encouraged, who can be brought up, who need fathers, who need mothers, in the faith and in every worldly sense. Let us be proclaimers of the good news of Jesus and so become fathers and mothers. Help us to take seriously your design for us, your purposes for us, and marvel in the mystery of the wonder that we somehow image you. And may we desire to glorify you all the more and all the better. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's continue to worship in song. Let's stand.